every now and then on this podcast, I get introduced to an OG in the diabetes community, an original outspoken leader in our space living for people with diabetes. And I'm very excited to introduce you guys to someone that many of you may already know, Dr. Gary Shiner. Uh, He only let me call him Doc Doc one time. Uh, So just for all of you fact checkers out there, that is is a fact. Gary is a an award-winning certified diabetes educator, master's level exercise physio- physiologist, and a person with type 1 diabetes since 1985. I'll tell you a quick story before we jump into the pod. The first time I met Gary was on the basketball court at AADE 2019 in August in Houston at the second annual diabetes basketball tournament at AAD, which is put on by My Sugar and run by Scott Johnson. And uh, is, I got to ref that last year and it was an amazing time. Shout out to Sharice Shockley as well, who was the honorary MC. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I was warned prior to the tournament by a person who will not be named and will remain nameless on this pod that Dr. Gary is a little bit competitive. And turns out he's competitive in just the way that I want to be competitive. Uh, he plays to win. He goes hard. And he doesn't let diabetes hold him back. So enough preamble. Gary, if you're listening to this, a ton of respect for you, man. And I appreciate all the work that you do for people with diabetes. He's also the author of a number of books, including Think Like a Pancreas, which I see circulating around social media from people taking photos of their favorite diabetes book. So that is a tremendous endorsement. If you want to know more about Gary, you can visit online, integrateddiabetes.com. He sees patients from all over the U.S. and probably all over the world. So again, again, integrateddiabetes.com and enjoy this interview with Gary Shiner. This episode is sponsored by Real Good Foods. Shout out Real Good Foods for supporting this podcast. I seriously love them and their products. They're awesome people as well. So big time, big time shout out. Especially in the quarantine, I've been eating so many of these breakfast sandwiches. So thanks, guys. Really, I appreciate it. Did you guys know Real Good Foods also makes ice cream? Yeah, you heard me right. Ice cream. And this isn't just some poor excuse for ice cream or ice cream disguised as frozen dessert or light ice cream. This is real ice cream, and it's real good because, you know, real good foods. The ice cream is available right now in Kroger, Safeway, and Meyer, but you can also order delivery from realgoodfoods.com. And they're offering free shipping during the social distancing and quarantine to make it easier for you to get the super premium flavors. They're also available at Vitamin Shop. Only six grams of sugar per serving, and this ice cream is sweetened with allulose to keep that premium ice cream flavor without all the added sugar. Real Good Foods currently has four super premium flavors available. Chocolate, Tanzanian vanilla, peanut butter chocolate chip, my personal favorite, and mint chocolate chip. Big shout out to Real Good Foods on their ice cream launch. Thanks for continuing to make awesome, delicious products that are easy on blood sugars. Check out realgoodfoods.com or Real Good Foods on social channels for more info. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all across the world. My very special guest today, calling from the Philly area, Dr. Gary Shiner. What's going on, Doc? How are you? Hey, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Don't call me Doc. I'll take that as an insult. Okay. Uh, just call me Gary. All right. Well, then uh, say no more. I, I'm not I'm not one for titles. I want to make sure to uh, give you the, the proper respect that you're due. Obviously... If you've been in the diabetes community, uh, either online or at events, uh, for any amount of time, your name has surely come up uh, in that timeline. But for the sake of this podcast, I'd love to talk not just about your background as an author, uh, as a clinician, as a founder, and as a voice in the community, but also as your life with diabetes. So let's let's start. Let's go back to, I guess, 1985, if my research uh, was correct. Uh, that's, that's when this whole journey started yeah. for you. Yeah, that, that one of the great ironies in, in history was uh, di- being diagnosed in a little town just outside of Houston called Sugarland. I figured, well, that's probably the place everyone goes to get diabetes. <laughs> uh, my family had moved there uh, just a year before. I grew up in, in North Jersey near New York. I uh, grew up a, a big Mets fan, Knicks fan, Jets, you know, all the, all the New York sports teams. We moved to Houston because my father was transferred. And a year later, uh, during the summertime, I, I just started losing weight quickly. I was tired all the time. The usual symptoms, peeing my brains out, thirsty constantly. 
finally you know, went to a doctor after I saw a uh, an episode of the show MASH, and there was a character on the show who had diabetes and had a lot of the same symptoms I did. So I figured, yeah, I better get this checked out. So I went to the you know family doctor, and he did a blood sugar right then and there. It was off the charts. So went to see an endocrinologist, and uh, you know that's that's where everything led up to. Uh, so Sugarland was was the original site of my you know, my diagnosis back in '85. So that makes it wow, coming up on almost 35 years with this now. Time flies. Time flies when you're having fun, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's funny. Uh, I've, I've being from Texas, I certainly played my fair share of uh, summer basketball and some high school basketball in the Houston <clears throat> area in Sugarland and uh, and Kingwood as well around there. Uh, that, but that, I mean, sort of writes itself, right? A diagnosis with diabetes right in the heart of Sugarland. Yeah, I have I have some photos from back then playing basketball outdoors. And granted, you know, it it's hot as anything in in, in Houston in the summertime. And um, so I have some photos of myself. I, I I'm skinny as a rail. I, mean, I lost a lot of weight, but I figured, you know, it's just hot. I'm exercising a lot. That's why I'm losing weight. You know, I finally you know, got it checked out. I wasn't ketotic. I'd never had to be admitted to the hospital. But I think if I had gone a little longer, uh, I, that would have happened. Uh, I have a picture of a, a date that I had the night I was diagnosed with this girl I worked with at a, at a restaurant. I was just working as a waiter in the evenings. And you know, again, I, it, it looks like I look like a scarecrow. I, mean, I just can't even keep my my clothes are hanging off of me like I'm on a coat hanger. Um, and I was down to, a, I think it was 118 pounds that day. And I normally weigh around one, 160. So I'd lost a lot of weight leading up to that. You know, it's funny. You'll, you'll appreciate this uh, from a basketball perspective. So, uh, and you were diagnosed, uh, you haven't said what age you were. You're 15, 16 around there? I was 18. 18, 18 years old. So I was 16 years old and a big basketball fan. So we had all the, my family had all the extra team channels. So I was watching the Miami Heat play somebody and they, the announcer guys were talking about Antoine Walker uh, showed up for the season in training camp, like very out of shape. And so this was now uh, towards the end of November, December, and he's losing the weight. So he's like, yeah, you know, he's running up and down. He's getting into the schedule. He's starting to round into shape. And so I was looking at myself at the time, a rail skinny 6'5", 175 pounds soaking wet 16-year-old. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's what's happening to me. I'm just getting into shape. I'm just losing some weight. And so uh, I was like, yeah, you know, me and Anton Walker just getting into shape. Uh, and that was kind of the first, uh, the first justification that I had along that journey. But, yeah, I have a very similar uh, – it was New Year's Eve the night before I was diagnosed, so I took a lot of photos with, with friends. And just looking at that guy in those pictures, I looked like a skeleton. Uh, and I think over time you don't really recognize it initially sometimes, but then, you know, looking back all these years now – uh, you know, pretty drastic weight change. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, physicians also don't look for the symptoms, don't recognize them. So when people come in, they they don't diagnose it right away. And I've learned since then that, you know, about, about half of all type one diabetes diagnoses come after age 18 adults, type one is being, you know, it's diagnosed in adulthood just as much as it is in children. You know, the, the JDRF used to be just used to go by Juvenile Diabetes Foundation, and they took away the, the the words and just go with JDRF now because they don't want to give the impression that it is just a childhood di- that disease. It's it's often diagnosed, and I see patients now who are diagnosed in their fifties, sixties, seventies. So it can happen at any age. Uh, we we see a lot of guests um, on the podcast who were misdiagnosed as type two um, because they were diagnosed in their twenties and maybe weren't you know had they had a lot of the same uh, sort sort of base level uh, symptoms of type two diabetes maybe a little bit out of sh- uh, overweight or um, you know exhibiting some of those same symptoms and then also in that honeymoon phase give them a little metformin and all of a sudden their numbers come down so. Uh, you know, I think we've had maybe 15 or 16 guests on the podcast so far with some sort of misdiagnosis. Um, and I think you mentioned too, the JDRF numbers, at least the, the most recent ones that I've seen report that in the U.S., 40,000 people a year get type 1, and it's half and half, uh, 20,000 below the age of 18 and 20,000 above. 
So pretty, pretty uh, for people yes. who are on the outside looking in, uh, you know, that's a pretty mind blowing number for somebody. And in that time, since yeah. you've been, you've had diabetes obviously, and uh, are working in, in, in the community of certified diabetes educators, information in the information age of diabetes over the last decade has drastically increased. Uh, what do you, what do you see things that you thought or things that were told to you when you were first diagnosed that, uh, you know, today you see like maybe a different response to? I guess the, the big thing you know, back in the you know, 80s, 80s, 90s is your insulin program sort of controlled your life. You had to structure your life around the insulin program that you were placed on. You had to take insulin to survive. But in order to keep your blood sugars reasonably well managed, you had to eat certain amounts of certain things at certain times. You had to be very cautious about your exercise and, and the consistency was critical your sleep times and not to mention your injection times for the insulin had to be uh, fairly structured and regimented so essentially you had to fit your life into your your diabetes management program and you know that's obviously changed radically now we fit your you know your diabetes management into your life nutritionally uh, back then it was it was thought that complex carbohydrates were favorable because they were slow to digest they wouldn't raise your blood sugar all at one time and it was all the simple sugars that, that had to be avoided and we know now that a lot more about nutrition we know that a lot of these starchy foods raise the blood sugar even faster than simple sugars do we also know the impact protein and fat can have on glucose levels so it's it's become a little more complex, but it's also become a lot more flexible as we learn how to match our insulin to what our needs are. From a sports standpoint, I, I, I was never was never discouraged uh, from being active, uh, but managing the diabetes with different forms of sports and exercise was always a challenge, and there was not a lot of, of good guidance, a lot of, not a lot of support for that. Nowadays. Uh, We've got great strategies for managing glucose with any form of physical activity people choose. We also know the impact that glucose levels have on performance in, in any sport. I'm sure you can relate, but when, when the blood sugars are high, it, it's really hard to perform well. I know when I play basketball, if my sugars are up, I feel like I'm running in mud. Everything is moving in, kind of in slow motion. and. I can't change directions as fast. My reaction times are slower. I can't defend it. Defense is all about quick reactions and, and thinking ahead of your opponent. And it's just really hard to think, think and move quickly when your glucose levels are up. Stamina is reduced, strength is reduced, and so on. So it's important to manage glucose levels to be able to perform. You know, it's funny you bring that up, um, and I think you and I are going to talk a lot about basketball today, which gives me so much joy. I'm excited about it. Um, <laughs> we could go back and watch every game film from my college career, and I could tell you what my blood sugar was, high or, high or in range or maybe low, low less often, uh, by the game. Uh, for me, uh, I get that sort of brain lock as well. If my sugars are, are high, I feel very tense and stressed out and uh kind of my jaw locks up, hold a lot of stress there. But then I also, with my hands, like something, like my hands are not shaky, but just off. They don't feel like they don't behave the way they normally do. So I could have, I'd have a ton of problems like scoring and even passing and dribbling. Just my hands would not be consistent. So yeah, we could go and look at some of these games. And uh, when I played well, it was, the correlation was my blood sugars were in range and I was able to, you know, yeah. move flexibly. It's a beautiful thing, and, and there's such a two-way relationship. Uh, I find if I go into a sport or a workout and mentally I'm really intense about it, that'll often drive the blood sugars higher just because of the adrenaline production. So I, I've learned I've got to I've got to chill. I've really got to relax with whatever activity it is, or my sugar's going to go up, and that's going to hurt my performance. And then when the sugars go up and I don't perform well, I get more upset and they go up even higher. So it kind of snowballs and gets worse instead of better. You know, and of course, when glucoses are low, we can't really do much of anything well. Uh, I don't know about you. I don't experience symptoms anymore when my sugars drop. I really rely on you know, my continuous monitor to alert me. 
but I've had times where I, I've been playing you know, a, a sport and my sugar's low. I didn't realize it. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe that's why I played so crappy. I've got my blood sugar is 58 and you, you don't realize it sometimes. It's sort of like people who, who drive after having a few drinks. They feel fine. They think, oh, no problem. But you test their reaction times and they're just not good. You know, they're, they're Judge, ability to judge distance and is, is not as good as it normally is. So, you know, subtle things like that. But getting back to your question about, you know, how things have changed you know, in, in the mid-80s. And granted, I've had patients who've had type 1 for 50, 60 years, so I'm kind of a baby when it comes to that. But we were using insulins that were not nearly as effective as the insulins we have today. We didn't have a flat background insulin. We had this stuff called NPH, and that would peak inconsistently sometimes four or six or eight hours after you took it we use regular insulin at meal times which took about two to three hours to peak so blood sugars after meals would tend to spike up really really high and then plummet for the next four or five hours uh, the glucose meters that we used were we didn't have cgm we just had point you know point of in time re- meters they used a lot of blood uh, the meters back then required about 10 to 20 microliters of blood. By comparison, today's meters use less than half a microliter in most cases. So you had to get a drop of blood literally dripping off your finger to have enough to fill the testing area. The testing areas were often square on the strips. I don't know about you, but I've never been able to get a square drop to come out of my finger. Yeah, I miss that skill set as well. Most of my yeah. splatter. I, I must not have gone to the doctor when they taught that, but it took a lot of blood, a lot of time, and the readings were, were not that precise. The meters were enormous, but at least it gave you some idea of whether you were really high or really low because it didn't seem like you had many readings in your target range back then. Uh, so, you know, obviously that's changed. The way we give insulin has changed also. You know, we had uh, syringes back then. Now most people use pens or pumps. You know, I'm, I'm lucky enough I'm using one of the hybrid closed-loop systems now that's uh, aided my, my management considerably. But it's, it's essentially we, we've learned how to fit our, our diabetes into our lives. We can match the insulin to our needs so that we can do what we want when we want and still manage the diabetes reasonably well. Yeah, I think we're in this interesting time. Um, and I, I guess I'll take credit for this term that I've tried to you know, put into some presentation as well. We're in this sort of diabetes renaissance where people like you and I are able to be connected via the Internet. And so there's this community aspect and knowledge share. Um, which has been a huge, great discovery for me, not only from a just personal wellness and overall balance aspect, but also clinically, like since I've been more involved in the diabetes community, my numbers are better. And I know many, um, many other people share that those results. And there's even some studies that show the benefits of being involved in diabetes, social media and blogs. But then there's also the technology side, like you said, um, and, you know, talking about the differences between not just the insulins, but the technology and the monitors uh, and the glucometers, which I feel like now the new the newest thing is, you know, you don't need to finger stick and you don't need to calibrate. But uh, the ones that we have are relatively easy to use and uh, easy to access and don't require as much blood. So, you know, you measuring that against what it was like uh, even for you in the 80s, like you mentioned, you're relatively a baby compared to some people who are in the 60s, 70th year of type 1, where they were testing with urine sticks uh, and, uh, you know, giving doses with glass needles that they had to boil every day to, to make sure that they were clean. So, you know, really in terms of life with diabetes, we're in this very emerging market of a uh, very new world of, of how of lifestyle applications. And I think the first thing you said is like uh, when you were diagnosed, you had to fit your lifestyle to diabetes. And now it's more of the fitting diabetes into your lifestyle. Yeah. A renaissance, I think, is a great word, Rob. I love that. And it truly is a, we are in a, a renaissance age. Although if you go back 10 years, we probably thought we were in a renaissance then, 10 years before that. And I bet if we look out five years from now, we're going to look back to 2020 and say, geez, that's archaic. What were you doing? Right. So it's an ever evolving renaissance that we're in. 
I do see a, there's a, certainly a renaissance in, in technology. There, there's a renaissance in the social aspects of living with diabetes because of the connectivity that the Internet has provided. I've got to be honest, though, where I do not see a renaissance is in the level of health care that's provided. And that's part of the reason I, I, I run the practice that I do. The, the vast majority of, of diabetes care providers are still offering very limited levels of care to their patients. They just don't have the time and a lot of cases don't have the expertise to help patients with type 1 diabetes manage it more successfully. They'll prescribe the insulin, they'll order the lab work, but that that's about it. Beyond that, they leave it to the patients to to still figure everything out on their own. And let's dig into that a little bit because I uh, obviously it's an area of expertise for you and um I have not had somebody with your knowledge of this on the podcast in this forum to, to have that discussion. So uh, I'll ask two things. Number one, I think, why is that? Uh, what you just mentioned of like the time and, uh, you know, I think a lot of it in my mind is these doctors are under, you know, the way the healthcare system is set up, they need to see a certain number of patients every day in order to run a, pra- a practice that makes money and can stay open. Uh, and then my second question is, you know, when we look at the numbers of people with just type 1 diabetes in the U.S., you know, somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 million people, um, there are not that many people going to JDRF conferences or ADA camps or even involved in the social media space at large. Where are those people and uh, why can't we reach them? What is, you know, those are, those are, those are where I want to start. And I think we can kind of spill out from there. Sure. Yeah, I think you, you pointed out one of the challenges is you know, the healthcare model as it exists uh, is not conducive to effective care of type one diabetes. Uh, healthcare nowadays it, it focuses on acute care. Just you have a, a condition, you treat it, you move on. Whereas with type one diabetes, this is ongoing, and there are countless decision points that the patients have to make on a day to day basis and teaching them how to do that effectively and guiding them on how to do it optimally, it, it's a skill set that's just not something that most physicians have or most other members of the healthcare team as well. Um, so par- part of it is time restriction. Uh, part of it is uh, access to all the new technologies. I know a lot of clinicians that work in hospital systems that can't even download a patient's meter much less go online and access their data because of the way the firewalls are set up in the hospital. So, you know, the structure is just not right. I think the wrong people are getting paid nowadays to care for and treat diabetes. Treatment of type 1 in particular, I think, requires a certain skill set. You've got to be a good communicator and teacher. You have to be savvy with numbers. You got to be able to crunch data effectively to be able to guide patients. Um, and and you have to, I think, have a certain empathy for the patient. And I, I find people who live with type one tend to have that more often than not. You know, I, I do know some clinicians who don't have diabetes who do excellent work, but there's so few and far between. I, I try to hire people who are extremely passionate, and clinicians who live with type 1 personally or have a child with type 1, because I think they can lend that, that empathy to, uh, to the, the patient care. And that's important because I think uh, verbiage and rhetoric relating to patient care outside of just compliant versus non-compliant. Uh, with diabetes, it's there's so much in between and so much nuance there. How do you you know how do you balance that? I think you're right. People with diabetes obviously have that firsthand experience and can really dig deeper into it. Um, but what what in your you know in your experience in your, in your practice, you know how do you balance that? Uh, you mean balance or, the my own diabetes care with. Providing uh, the care for others. No, let me let me rephrase. I, I think balance is the wrong word. How do you find a balance between uh, taking compliant versus non-compliant into a way that can really relate more with a patient with diabetes? Okay. Well, I, I try to see it from the patient's point of view. I mean, I, I have my own way. I like to do things. 
but I, I recognize that that's my own personal approach and every one is, is an individual and what's going to work for one person isn't going to work for another. So customization, individualization is really essential. Uh, there are people who, who respond well to being told you're doing a crappy job, you got to do better. There are people who respond to that. More often than not, though, we got to recognize that, yeah, this is a pain in the ass disease. It's not an easy thing to manage. It's frustrating. There's inconsistencies. There's, I mean, there's no real benefit we're getting day in and day out. I think it was Bill Polanski who once said that all the work we put into diabetes management is basically so that nothing will happen. You know, think about it. what kind of motivator is that? We do all of this stuff to just to avoid problems. You know, we try to avoid health complications and we try to avoid, you know, per, poor performance and severe lows and ketoacidosis. It's all about doing all this work so that nothing will happen. And it's sort of a Sisyphean effort, right? We're just pushing the rock up the hill every day only for it to roll down again and us have to continue that effort. Um, yeah. And, you know, usually when you put that amount of hard work into something, there's some sort of positive reward at the end. You know, you want to at least get some dopamine injection in there or something. But yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, I just got to eat dinner and didn't have any complications or I got to go yeah. to the gym and uh, felt fine afterwards, you know, or I went to my I took my kid to a birthday party and they had a good time. <laughs> it's like so. Yeah, you know, it, there's, it's, it has no diabetes has no memory. And I, I love the, the, movie, the original Terminator movie. There was a line from that where uh, they, they were describing the Terminator, this monster. He said, you know, he, he has no remorse, he has no compassion, and he will not ever stop until he gets you. And that's a lot of what diabetes is like. It doesn't care what you did yesterday or even this morning. If you, if you screw up this afternoon, your blood sugar is going to be terrible. Uh, so it, it takes a certain amount of, of perseverance and discipline, but it also takes acceptance. It takes acceptance that we're not always going to get it right, and that's okay. I probably deal more with patients who are overly critical of themselves than I deal with patients who are just underworking their diabetes. Most of the people I see are working too hard at it, and they, they're too intense about it. And I'm looking for ways to ease their mental burden at least as much as I'm looking for ways to improve their diabetes, their blood sugar management. Definitely. And I think that is the, you know, as we look for balance, right, that, you know, what in relieving the, uh, you know, the mental strain, I think I heard Dr. Fran Kaufman uh, say one time, I think it was at AADE uh, in 2018, she talked about the mountain of uh, of technology and uh, you know we're go moving up and technology continues to increase uh, for your diabetes care but on the other side of that triangle is the relief of the mental burden and so you know things like continuous glucose monitoring and hybrid closed loop systems are working to not only uh, improve quality of care but also relieve the mental strain and burden that diabetes can put on you because as you know and and have written about like there there is no cure right now so there's no you know hey if you do diabetes if you manage your diabetes great for a thousand straight days then then you're good no you still you still have it mm -hmm. yeah I, I like the way you phrase that it, it is a balance between uh, you know, the, the energy we put into it and the benefit we get out of it. The thing about all of these modern technologies is that up to this point, we're still not seeing a whole lot of improvement in, in glucose control. When we look at you know, A1Cs and time in range and frequency of lows, it's, it's about as bad as ever. Uh, so even though we have these technologies, you know, they've made life easier for a lot of people. They've made things a bit more convenient. The, the glucose management's not gotten much better. And that comes back, I think a lot of that comes back to the kind of care patients are getting where they're not being guided properly. Now, for example, people go on insulin pumps, but they never get their basal insulin doses set up properly. Or they never get their, they never learn how to really carb count effectively. So they're not really matching their food to their insulin all, or their insulin to their food all that well. So it, it's the teaching and it's the, it's the details that go into use of these technologies that is so critical. 
Yeah, I, f- I find that uh, when I talk to people with pumps, because I, I also wear a, a hybrid closed loop. I wear the Medtronic 670G uh, system, and people will message me on social media asking about, you know, certain features or what they should want to expect or whatever. And um, I realized a dramatic number of them were just getting the pump shipped to them with no pump trainer, uh, or they hadn't been contacted by, you know, or uh, worked with their endocrinologist or a CDE that they were sort of just setting it on their own and they were having a lot of problems with it. And, you know, I was explaining to someone, it's kind of like trying to fix your car yourself, you know, like you, in a sense, know how an oil change works, but actually going in there and somebody who's done it a thousand times is going to be infinitely better than, than you, right? And having an expert in the room. Um, yeah. And that's so essential. It, it, it's interesting to use the oil change analogy because any physician, anyone with a medical degree can prescribe an insulin pump. But how much do they know about the pump and how to manage it and use it safely? Oftentimes, very little. An auto mechanic is certified on every product under the hood. Anything they're working on, they've received trainings and certifications on. They actually know more about devices in your car than your physician knows about devices they're prescribing. It's a sad state of affairs that that's the case. But again, that's that's the medical model that's set up now where only a, you know, a physician can prescribe these things, whether they know anything about them or not. So how did you, you know, knowing all this and we've had, you know, discussions about the problems with the system, setting up your practice, um, how did you position yourself or, you know, what steps did you take to try to improve on, you know, that for the, you know, for patient outcomes, right? I mean, obviously everything is with the patient in mind. How did you design your practice to address those issues? I tried to address the major barriers to providing effective care for patients. Uh, One of those barriers is simply access. Uh, having to go to an office, see somebody, park your car, et cetera. So we offer our service in person, but we also offer all of our services remotely. So we do video chats, we do phone, we do email uh, with patients. So we offer the remote access. We have patients in all 50 states and about 30 foreign countries as well. We even hired a Spanish-speaking CDE, uh, who's a nurse, type one herself, to work with Spanish-speaking patients. We got a lot of clientele in Central and South America as a result of that. Um, so that's one barrier is the access. Uh, another one is the time. It, it does take considerable time to teach at an appropriate pace. It also takes a lot of time to analyze data and be able to help patients fine-tune things properly. So we, we schedule plenty of time for patients. We, you know, appointments are usually 45 to 90 minutes long. And we also spend time before appointments usually looking at downloaded data. Um, and we offer patients the option of working with us between appointments. A lot of the, the nuts and bolts of diabetes care doesn't happen during an office visit or an appointment. It happens in between. So we offer them the opportunity to communicate with us or send us data anytime they want. And we're available to review and offer input and help them troubleshoot and answer any questions that come up. Uh, another barrier has to do with the, I guess, the skill set of the person doing providing the care. So we focus strictly on intensive insulin therapy, not just diabetes, but intensive insulin therapy because you have type 2 specialists out there who don't know squat when it comes to insulin fine-tuning this is all we do it's just intensive insulin management whether it's pumps or injections that's our thing so we work mostly with type 1 but also type 2s who are on on insulin and I have a staff of clinicians who all have that personal link to type 1 uh, and we, we get a lot of continuing education. We really stay on top of things. And because we focus on this, we're able to provide a, a better level of care. So I, I feel that you know, that combination of things, and I also try to hire people who have a good sense of humor, who are good communicators, and uh, you know, just relate well to people. The right person, the right personality makes all the difference in the world. So I feel that those are some of the things that I've built into my practice to you know, be able to meet patients' needs a whole lot better. 
and you know, now I'm going to ask the million dollar question because I, you know, all those things are music to my ears as a, as a patient or even as like a, a business person, like, oh yeah, like the, we're solving problems. We're, you know, innovating. What are some of the, you know, as, as you got started with this, how did you know that, you know, this, this method and this methodology and the way you're approaching it was really resonating with patients? Well, the fact that patients are paying out of pocket for the service tells me that it resonates. Uh, we have a standard set of fees, but yeah, I'm not a businessman. I'm not a business major. I'll accept whatever people can afford. You know, that's kind of uh, part of, of my giving back to the diabetes world is I'm not going to ever exclude people who can't afford to access our services. So and that's, really that's part of the access problem as a whole anyway. Yeah, I think so. By avoiding the whole insurance fiasco, and it is a fiasco, we can focus our time on serving the patient. We're not dealing with you know, bureaucratic paperwork and a lot of time, unproductive time involved in the insurance process. So patients just pay us, we offer the service, it's simple, it's, it's easy. The fact that we have thousands of patients paying us out of pocket for a, you know, something they may be able to get similar care from, you know, paid by their insurance. The fact that they come to us for this and they're willing to pay out of pocket, I, th I think speaks volumes. And we've collected outcome data, uh, not just A1Cs, but more importantly, time in range. How the quality of, of management has improved dramatically with the patients we work with, cutting down on lows, cutting down on highs, spending more time in I call it the happy zone or the performance zone where you like your blood sugars to be. Uh, let's talk a little bit about time and range. Um, earlier when you were talking about regular and NPH, it reminded me that about two years ago in January 2018, I did 30 days on R and NPH, uh, I went off of my pump, went off, and I wore a CGM during the time to try to document the data of to show the difference of uh, between the quote-unquote Walmart insulins and, uh, you know, rapid-acting insulins. Um, and obviously talking through the insulin crisis, and there were, there's a lot of misinformation being spread by people who don't know what they're talking about. Uh, the, you know, why are people dying from, without insulin? Insulin's available at Walmart and what have you. And what I wanted to show was that while, yes, you can survive on these treatments and therapies, that they're very outdated. And what I found myself doing with, you know, as a relatively compliant, I think at the time I went into it with an A1C of 6.1 and came out of that 30 days with it gone up two and a half points to almost 6.4. And I was just pinging back and forth between high and low. And, and I also was wearing a CGM. So uh, the privilege of that was like even uh, just able to see what that graph looked like at the end of the day and be able to, you know, mark what I was doing and what I was eating. Uh, there's so much more strain and like very little time in range and a very unbalanced approach to, to care. Um, and so that's where we've come from. Uh, but at the end of the day, my A1C wasn't quote unquote out of range. Uh, but my lifestyle, I was exhausted. I wasn't getting like good sleep. I wasn't able to exercise the same way I wanted to. And I was, you know, you just looked at me and I looked worse off. Um, so all that to say, you know, coming from, you know, where we started this conversation on how therapy has improved to now where time and range uh, is the, I, I guess, it's A1C is still the primary measurement, but time and range being the focus now, um, you know, and, and having more ability to collect that data on a more regular basis, you know, what are you seeing in the time and range versus A1C and how, how are patient outcomes improving by focusing on that? Well, first off, Rob, I have a newfound respect for you. Anybody who, for the purposes of science, would go back to those old school insulins to prove that point, you're all right in my book. I, I can appreciate your doing that, and thank you for doing that. Uh, yeah, that's, I, I think there's a difference between a, a quality metric and a quantity metric. A quantity metric is something like an A1C. It's a number, it reflects an overall average, but it speaks nothing to the quality of life that a person is experiencing to, to get there. And you can have a, a nice A1C and 6.4, that's a great A1C. That, even though it went up slightly, I still think that's fantastic. But you can have an A1C like that with fairly stable glucose where you're in your performance zone and feel good most of the time. 
or you can get there by running a lot of peaks and valleys, highs and lows throughout the day and night. And not only your day-to-day quality of life is affected by that, but long-term complications are influenced by that. There's growing evidence about the effects of glucose variability. Swings in blood sugar rapidly up and down seems to cause what's called oxidative stress and contributes additionally to long-term diabetic complications. So it, it is a problem when, when we see a lot of variability like this. I, I do a ton of lecturing on just the simple idea of how do we keep our sugars from spiking right after we eat. People don't like the feeling of going up into the two or three hundreds right after eating, even if it does come down on its own once the insulin finally kicks in. So th- this idea of, of stabilizing blood sugar is, is an important one. And that's where the, you know, the concept of time and range exists. To me, that's more of a quality measure. And it, it's individualized. I, I think it, it is different for different people. Like I had a patient in the office earlier today who has a, a, a history of a lot of severe lows. And we really need to run their sugars a little higher than most people's. And, and she's very happy with blood sugars that are between 80 and 180. So that's our acceptable range. Uh, other patients will come in, we're striving to keep them between, say, 70 and 150 or 70 and 160. We, we work with a lot of women through their pregnancies, and there we're looking at maybe 60 to 140 as an acceptable range. So and with kids, the range is often a little higher and, and spread out a bit more. But you know, once you've determined what your acceptable range is, then you can work on strategies for achieving as much time in that range as possible. It's different than saying, well, your A1C is eight. Let's get it down to seven. You can do that and really screw things up because you can wind up hypoglycemic a heck of a lot of the time. But achieving more time in range is clearly beneficial. That's certainly going to improve a person's day-to-day quality of life. You perform better in, in athletics, exercise, energy level. Mentally, you perform better. Emotionally, you're more stable when you keep yourself within your target zone. That's why you know, time in range is, is growing as a metric of, of the quality of a person's diabetes management. You know, it's interesting uh, just kind of hearing you talk about setting a different range for an individual. Uh, that everybody has a little bit, I think we know tertiarily, at least, or in, uh, anecdotally, that diabetes is different for everyone, uh, that you and I will, will have different reactions and responses to different things and have our own way of, of treatment that works for us. But something that I was thinking as you were describing that was when you have, or when I have, uh, sugars that are more in range or more in the range that I like them to be in, most of the other things in my life become more predictable as well. I'm more able to, you know, perform athletically. Uh, I'm, it's more predictable what my mood's going to be like or uh, what food I like to eat or, you know, what activities I'm able to do um, versus, you know, before it's really like, oh, I have to make a decision based on what my diabetes is doing right now. And it wasn't necessarily as dependable. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, some people think, well, if I'm, let's say I'm playing a sport or taking an exam, I just have to worry about my blood sugar during that time. But that's not true because your glucose levels for the past 12 to 24 hours are still influencing that because it influences your hydration level. It influences glycogen storage. It influences sleep quality. And these are the kind of things that affect our performance on a day-to-day basis. So if you don't want diabetes holding you back in any way, you have to think about you know, your management around the clock. And it's not to say it needs to be perfect. You know, in most cases, if, if you can get your glucose in range at least 70 75% of the time, you're doing a super job. That still means you know you can be out of range 20, 25% of the time. That's okay. You know, for somebody to be in range for a 24-hour period is, is an accomplishment. You know what we call those those days? They're called no hitter, no hitters. <laughs> yeah, when you don't hit your high or your low threshold at all, and you stay in the zone for 24 hours. And a lot of people like to post those on social media because it's it's a it's a a sense of pride. You know, it is a point of pride to be able to do that. Absolutely, but I but I think too I like the term no hitter because a no hitter doesn't happen all the time, even for the best ace pitchers, right? There are That's very right. few it's and far between. It's a special occasion. 
Uh, that's very cool. I think you mentioned earlier talking about acceptance um, and the diabetes. And I think right after that, you said diabetes is difficult and it's complex. When you go and speak to, you know, at JDRF uh, conferences or at AD or at ADA, um, do you find, I guess my own personal experience, I think a lot of what you were talking about on social media is people who are more publicly facing about their diabetes, there is some sort of air at times from the audience that everything is easier or everything is uh, happy-go-lucky and that there's more uh, no-hitters than, than days where you're, you know, everybody's getting on base. But I think to hear that diabetes is hard from someone like you, um, I think that sometimes turns a light on for people uh, where, you know, because I think as, as humans, we're like tied to performance as like always being positive and like really progressing and growing. And with diabetes, it's sort of the opposite of that. Like you, no matter how good you get at it, you still don't, it doesn't really change for you. I'll share a quick story with you about that very subject, Rob. Uh, I was speaking at a children with diabetes conference last year, and there was a presenter before me who was a physician who has type 1 diabetes. He was from the Midwest, showing how stable his glucose levels were with the approach that he was using. And he had just had, you look at his data, he had no hitter after no hitter. It was just continuously like that. And I'm looking at the audience. These are mostly parents of kids with type 1, some young adults with type 1, and I just saw everyone's shoulders sag, and I saw their mouths kind of go agape a little bit. And then I got up to present, and I, I, I did a quick scan that I stuck in my presentation of my blood sugars for the last 24 hours, where I peaked up above 300 twice in the last day, and I had one pretty bad low. I got a standing ovation. I think people appreciated that even the experts deal with this stuff day in and day out. And, and the fact that it happens to us also made them feel more comfortable and just a little more secure that you, know, you can do all the right things and it doesn't always turn out the best. Uh, it gives people a little bit more confidence to, to keep keep at it. And I think there's some sort of and I'm, I'm sure you can speak to this more eloquently than I can. There's a psychological component to chronic illness about being sick uh, and that that sickness has carries a negative connotation. I think that uh, many times can be very heavy uh, for people. So similar to you, uh, they didn't give me a standing ovation, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll work. I got something to aspire to. Uh, at the beginning, of, I give a presentation. Um, occasionally, people want me to talk about elite athletics uh, in sport. And my first slide is, hey, like, just to let you know, diabetes sucks. And also, most people are not in shape uh, to play elite sports. Like, most people who don't have diabetes don't make it to the gym the prescribed amount. There's a, you know, obesity is a crisis in the United States is just a, just a start. But just seeing people like, oh, yeah, like, this is hard. What you're doing is difficult. It's okay to not get it right every single time. Um, just kind of softening that a little bit really, uh, like you said, eliminates that shoulder hunch or uh, head down kind of weighty moment. Um, yeah. And I think, fact, I think the, it's just important the, the, to talk about. The worse your glucose control, I think the more they like you. <laughs> the <more laughs> yeah, which is also a double-edged sword, right? <laughs> yeah, the more they feel they can at least relate to you. And you know, we're dealing with the same challenges. That's why I, I, one of the first things we do w with any new patient that we have is we start out talking about what their goals are. What do you really want to accomplish here? And sometimes we have to negotiate those goals with them a little bit. They, they might say, well, I want my blood sugar between 70 and 120. And I look them in the eye and I, I say, yeah, in what world are you living? Let's talk about reality. What's really achievable and what's desirable? And you know, we'll also talk about other goals they may have that are not specifically blood sugar and number related. But I think having a realistic set of goals going in, that sets the stage for the kind of care they're going to receive and, and how we're going to manage. And that, I think, in a sense, is really making diabetes a part of your life, right? That psychological aspect, it's, and, and not the inverse, like we talked about um, you know, when you were first diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, my, I mean, my own challenge, from my own standpoint, is, is my diet. Uh, I eat a lot of healthy food. I also eat a lot of unhealthy food. You add it all up, I eat a lot of food. Uh, I'm not very disciplined. 
when it comes to my food intake. Uh, I tend to eat too frequently, make a lot of poor choices. I get plenty of the nutrients I do need, but also a lot that I don't need. That's my my kryptonite when it comes to my own diabetes care. And I've never really been willing to uh, give in on that a whole lot. So, you know, my A1C, my time in range are decent, not great, but that that's reality. Uh, on the other hand, I, I work out religiously. It's rare that I miss a day. Uh, I use the new, all the technologies now to the fullest extent. You know, my stress level is good. I, I manage all of the other, uh, you know, cholesterol, blood pressure, et cetera. But, you know, I've got this weakness with my food intakes. Everyone, you know, just keeping it real. No one's perfect, and I don't expect our patients to be either. I think that's that really helps. And all of our clinicians are like that. We all know each other's uh, kryptonites in our diabetes care, and you know, we can laugh about it. It's okay to experience that. You know, low blood sugar is something that, that – has always been a challenge for me though as well. And I haven't had to receive glucagon in over 20 years, but it was scary back in the day when I did. Um, you know, low blood sugar is 10 times as dangerous as a high blood sugar. And some, some patients have to be convinced of that. They like to live in a low range. They're so anxious about elevated blood sugars that they'll, they'll let themselves run low way too often. And there's just so many dangers uh, involved with lows, not to mention that we often rebound from them and wind up high anyway, or we overeat and start gaining weight from them. You know, and that doesn't even get into the immediate hazards of you know, driving a car impaired or you know, falling down a flight of steps, getting hit in the head with a soccer ball, whatever. Personalities change dramatically also. And when my moods change, the first thing my wife says is, go check your blood sugar. She knows something's <laughs> up. Now I can just look at my Dexcom. I used to be able to get away with all kinds of things. I would say, oh, I'm sorry, my sugar was off. And then she could say, let me see your CGM. And she knows, ah, oh, you're, you're doing fine. <laughs> uh, I had one, one family that I worked with. It was an elderly couple. With a, the husband, Morty, had type 1 for you know, 50 years. And his wife asked me one time, uh, she was telling me that when, when Morty gets low blood sugar, he becomes very amorous with her. Normally, he's a really stoic, quiet guy. But when he gets low blood sugar, she said he starts to kiss me and, and whispers sweet nothings in my ear. That's what she said. And her question for me was, how long can I let that go on before I get him something to eat? She liked it. <laughs> So, yeah, your moods can change when you're low also, all kinds of behavior. How, how do you react to lows? Do, you, do your moods change at all? I, I get a little bit uh, kind of like I've had too much to drink uh, where I'm, you know, a little bit slow to think, a little bit slow to react, um, kind of drowsy. Um, and it really just, you know, definitely I feel like more loose and very relaxed. So, you know, when I'm, when I was playing basketball, like in a practice or something in college and I would feel my sugar, I'd have that kind of, you know, airy kind of, uh, off balance kind of feeling, but I was playing and I was playing really well and I was in the flow. I was like, I wonder how long I can keep this up. Um, <laughs> yeah. and I was, you, you know, I go a secret to better performance. <laughs> I, yeah. I, you know, or so I thought, you know, very small sample size, but yeah, that's kind of my, my low blood sugar. I think where my moods really swing is when I, anytime I'm over 200, I, uh, I have a very quick temper. Um, and I occasionally have a, I was gifted a very sharp tongue from my father who, uh, and occasionally that gets me in very hot water with, uh, with my fiance and even my friends are like, Hey man, like calm down. <laughs> Why are you attacking my character right now? So uh, your level of satire is a barometer for your blood sugar. In other words, definitely, definitely. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just really interesting, you know, those, how, how much of your life outside of just the number is affected by what the number is. Uh, you know, you talked about, you know, hydration and sleep, two things that I think are very, uh, very in vogue right now in the fitness and like kind of fitness tracking world in the health and wellness space. And I just think like I, I value those so much into my diabetes. I can absolutely see the difference of when I get a good night's sleep versus not a good night's sleep, or I'm stressed on a deadline for work and I'm, you know, working through the night, I'm not drinking water. And then I wake up the next day and I'm like, man, I'm resistant today. Like something's going on. And it's like, oh yeah, it's what I did 48 hours ago. That's impacting who I am right now. 
Yeah, I mean, diabetes management has such far-reaching effects in our lives. You wouldn't think that just blood sugar can do so much, but when blood sugars are not at least in a reasonable range, it affects so many things negatively. Uh, that's one of the motivators I try to use with the people I work with, the patients, is that you know, I try to find out, well, what's important to you in your life? You know, for some of them, you know, it's it's looking good. Others, it's doing well in school or, or athletics. And, and that that's more of the focal point. I, I don't really dwell much on long-term complications because, again, no one gets motivated doing all these things every day so nothing happens that's that's not an effective motivator but the day-to-day stuff is much more of a motivator i find it's interesting because you know complications like a lot of those are fear-based tactics which you know almost no motivator would ever use to try to get you to improve at something and yet in healthcare uh specifically diabetes like much of much of the first you know experiences with diabetes is all centered around fear yeah, it's used all the time and inappropriately. It's actually more of a deterrent to you know, engage in the right behaviors than than a motivator. It's really interesting, I, man. I think I feel like we could talk for hours on this. So I want to uh, I want to make sure that I'm being a good use of your time, and also I have some more, just a couple more questions I want to ask you. Uh, so I'm going to hit you with a couple. Uh, last year, you played in the second annual uh, AAD basketball tournament. Do you have a prediction for uh, how this ne- the next year is going to go? Uh, are you planning to participate? And I think I'm going to be, again, involved, hopefully, in some capacity. i got to get Scott Johnson on the phone and figure that out. But uh, what can we look forward to the, in the upcoming uh, AAD basketball tournament? Well, I'll, I'll quote Mr. T from Rocky Three when he said, what's your prediction for this fight? And he just stared in the camera and said one word, pain. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, uh, but- it, it. It's a fun event. It's just nice being able to get on the court with other people from the diabetes world and 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 play a, you know, a, a fun game. You know, it, it, no one takes it terribly seriously. We're all out there just having a good time. Um, I'm hoping that they can expand the court a little bit because my strength is not my down low inside presence. I'm, I'm five, nine, one sixty. That's not happening. I'm more of a runner and, and, you know, streaker and all that. I, I, I need a bigger court to be able to perform well. Yeah. As a, as a fan of the pace and space game, uh, this year's court was not conducive to that. It was like, no, it, it uh, was barely just a lane with a few feet outside of that. And that was it. Ben Simmons would love it. Cause that's the only place he plays. But. Perfectly suited to Ben Simmons game. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was interesting, uh, you know, being asked to be a part of that for the first time last year, just kind of having a good fun time being the ref and seeing everybody compete. Uh, and that was one thing that I really enjoyed, but also just kind of looking around, uh, the who's who of AAD, AAD were watching those games. It was a, a really well-attended, uh, event. So I'm really looking forward to continuing to grow that with, uh, with the rest of the crew there. Um, Number two uh, question I want to ask you is, uh, you know, when you're when you're talking to people at conferences or, uh, you know, you are people are asking you about your book. I think think like a pancreas comes up often as a as the maybe most I I don't I don't have data on that. But like I I see it more than than a lot of other diabetes books Um, for people who are are looking for more information on on you and and your approach, uh, you know, how would you, where would you point them uh, to go and and how would you, uh, you know, give it, what advice would you give them as they get started? Yeah, I mean, our our website has a lot of good resources on it that people can access anytime. We've got a a lot of good detail with, with about pumps and comparing systems and comparing CGMs and hybrid closed loops. There's logging systems and there's a lot of good resources on our website there's even a a diabetes quiz that has a simpsons theme to it and we have a carb counting test that is a challenging one if you want to test your carb counting skills and that's just integrateddiabetes.com is the website Uh, think like a pancreas is is sort of like my opus a lot of my experience and knowledge of diabetes went into goes into that book and i have a, a third edition coming out uh in may and it, it encapsulates a lot of the new technology and how to make better use of you know these cgm systems how to look at data properly 
uh, had a benefit from clo hybrid closed loop technologies. Uh, you use the, the Medtronic 670, but we, we just we now have the tandem control IQ. We have open APS and the loop system. Uh, and you know, being able to, to access those and utilize them effectively is the difference between having technology and benefiting from it. So there's a great deal about that in, in the new edition of the book. But yeah, the integrateddiabetes.com, good place to go. There's a bio on me and my, and my fellow uh, clinicians there and, and uh, think like a pancreas as, as my opus. Well, we'll absolutely include links to both of those in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and want to know more, just uh, open up your podcast app, check out the show notes, and we'll go from there. Um, okay, my third question. Um, someone's listening to this podcast. They are struggling with their diabetes or they are recently diagnosed. Uh, what's one piece of you know advice or encouragement that you would give to somebody who's really just beginning to try to make sense of this whole diabetes world? Uh, I would say relax. Uh, we'll get it figured out. You'll get it figured out. Uh, take small steps. Uh, work with a clinician who knows what they're doing, really understands type 1 specifically. Uh, I think that, that makes a very big difference. Um, you know, and come up with a set of realistic goals and then work towards them. There are solutions to all of these issues, all these problems that we run into. But if you don't have a realistic set of goals in mind, it's hard to know where to start or you know, how to proceed. Yeah, great advice. Um, I think you know you mentioned it earlier. Earlier, talking about the mental strain and this idea that there's a you, know, you can hit a no hitter every day. Uh, you know, it's, every day is going to be different, and it's just a a very complex list of criteria that just gets you to be normal, like we said. But um, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and really giving your time. This is an awesome episode. Certainly not the last time uh, you and I will run into each other, but um, thank you for, for all that you do for the diabetes community. And uh, I'm really looking forward to continuing to run into you uh, in upcoming events. Yeah, I'll share one more quick story with you. And another uh, pro basketball player with type one, um, you probably know Chris Dudley, yep. who played for Portland, New York, New Jersey, when they were in New Jersey, six foot 11 center, the worst foul shooter in the history of the NBA. He was just terrible. He made Shaq look like a great foul shooter. Uh, he, he was at one of the conferences I was at and they had a, a basketball court set up and we Got, you know, it was a pickup game, and I got to guard him, even though he's 14 inches taller than me. And he backed me down, backed me down, and then slammed the ball through the hoop with such ferocity that he literally ripped the stanchion down. <laughs> so <laughs> left a, an impression on my on my head that uh, I'll never forget. I'm no pro, but I, I still love to play. And that, that's the thing. You, know, you, you can enjoy your sport, enjoy what you do. You don't have to be a professional at it. Uh, I'll, I'll share a Chris Dudley story as well. I've, I've worked with his foundation uh, at a distance. I haven't been to a camp. That's one of my uh, items I want to do in the next couple of years is get up and be a coach or a counselor at one of those camps that they run up in, in Oregon. Um, but when I was diagnosed, there were two guys when I went to the, when I went to the old search engine, uh, I think it was either Yahoo could have been Google, but it was early days of Google. Uh, I searched for type one diabetic basketball players. And number, the one that I knew already was Adam Morrison cause it was 2005 and he was in, you know, a senior at Gonzaga and really, uh, you know, co-national player of the year that year. Uh, but then there was also Chris Dudley who played, I think like 10 or 11 years in the NBA had a really long career. Uh, don't YouTube him because uh, the first thing that pops up is when Shaq breaks a goal over over Chris Dudley uh, and then like shoves him out of bounds. It's like a it's a bad look for uh, for people who are looking for encouragement. There's plenty of other ones, but like you know all the work that they do at the foundation is incredible. And uh, he's also run for state senator, and uh, you know he's a, a very very active uh, and, and a very inspiring figure. So, uh, I'm, I'm thankful that he hasn't broken a goal on my head, but I, hopefully I'll be able to take the court with him here in uh, the next couple of years. Look up Gary Forbes. He played for Toronto as type one as well. We actually had Gary on the podcast. Uh, oh, did he, you? Yeah. Oh. Three episodes ago, he and I, uh, 
three years ago. So I lived in Denver. I'll give you the short story. I lived in Denver or in Colorado when I was in college playing uh, in college at University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And he, while he was in Denver, so I remember reading, of course, like, hey, the Nuggets signed a new guy. He has diabetes. And I remember being 20 years old and seeing, like, hey, here's a guy. He's not an NBA all-star, but he's a guy making it in the league with type 1. Um, so when I got really going with the podcast back in 2017, we connected on Instagram. And he had just had surgery and was uh, really going through a tough time. And he talks about that on the podcast uh, later because it was like a two and a half year journey to get him on the pod. Uh, but when we finally did, it was, you know, all the things he had experienced in the time since we had met with related to diabetes were super, super beneficial. So, uh, yeah, Gary, I think is only really beginning to understand his impact in the diabetes world. And as he kind of comes to the end of his playing career in the next few years, I'm really excited to see, uh, what he does. Great. Hey Rob, thanks for having me on this. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by Real Good Foods. Shout out Real Good Foods for supporting this podcast. I seriously love them and their products. They're awesome people as well. So big time, big time shout out. Especially in the quarantine, I've been eating so many of these breakfast sandwiches. So thanks, guys. Really, I appreciate it. Did you guys know Real Good Foods also makes ice cream? Yeah, you heard me right. Ice cream. And this isn't just some poor excuse for ice cream or ice cream disguised as frozen dessert or light ice cream. This is real ice cream, and it's real good because, you know, real good foods. The ice cream is available right now in Kroger, Safeway, and Meyer, but you can also order delivery from realgoodfoods.com. And they're offering free shipping during the social distancing and quarantine to make it easier for you to get the super premium flavors. They're also available at Vitamin Shop. Only 6 grams of sugar per serving, and this ice cream is sweetened with allulose to keep that premium ice cream flavor without all the added sugar. Real Good Foods currently has four super premium flavors available. Chocolate, Tanzanian vanilla, peanut butter chocolate chip, my personal favorite, and mint chocolate chip. Big shout out to Real Good Foods on their ice cream launch. Thanks for continuing to make awesome, delicious products that are easy on blood sugars. Check out realgoodfoods.com or Real Good Foods on social channels for more info.